Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week, we are hopping from one massive space war to another. Welcome to the Annihilation Saga Conquest! Excelsior. Annihilation Conquest is a perfect comic title, in my opinion. It really is, especially for space stuff. It feels scary, but also important. Do you remember when every sequel had like revelations or resurrection as like a subtitle? Right when the Assassin's Creed series was popping off? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what Annihilation Conquest... That's what Annihilation Conquest is coming out. When Assassin's Creed 3 is coming out or something. Maybe when when the Ezio games are coming out. This is an Ezio game contemporary. That's the cultural moment we're living in. That's how I think about things now. In terms of Assassin's Creed games? Yeah, in terms of Assassin's Creed games. I guess, are are we ending by the time they get to become horrible buggy messes? They kind of start like that and then return there every three or four games. (laughs) It's a wonderful series. Anyway, but we're not talking about uh, resurrecting through DNA memory. We're talking about characters who are grappling with a different sort of legacy. Uh, we're talking about the Annihilation Saga. So if people are just joining us, Elias, like, what's this whole thing that we are doing? So the Annihilation Saga is this about 10 to 15 year span run of comics set in the Marvel Cosmic Sector, way out in space. We don't really deal with a lot of Earth stuff, as far as I know, as far as we've gotten. Uh, and it basically started off with our good bug friend from the negative zone, Annihilus, showing up and being like, I want this universe, gimme, 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 uh, I'm gonna murder everyone. And he has his army, he pairs up with Thanos, Thanos pairs up with, uh, who I have dubbed TNA, the cosmic beings from the beginning of the universe who the Silver Surfer surfs into oblivion. <laughs> uh, and there's this big battle. The entire Nova Corps is destroyed. Novas are basically space cops. They're Green Lanterns, but worse. Uh, and they're also now all dead except yeah, for Green one. Green Lanterns, but dead, more like. Green Lanterns, but dead. So Actually, like the, the Green Lanterns all are often again. all dead. Yeah. <laughs> now that I think about it. So, the Annihilation... Saga, the first three episodes that we did, the first three trades, was basically one giant space war. It lasted about a year, and it was intense and brooding and bloody. And now we're on to the sequel, Annihilation Conquest. So uh, one thing that uh, changes is when we started this uh, Annihilation series, uh, Keith Giffen was like the big man in charge, right? It was clearly his vision, his tone. He was writing most of the issues, and a lot of people were writing around his main series, right? Yeah, exactly. Giffen is still involved at this point, although I think that he's going to drop off very soon and become less involved, and uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning are going to become the architects of this storyline, and uh, this is kind of like a passing of the torch moment, and it's where their two disparate styles are like really intersecting in a big way, and I think it's great. I, th- I Sometimes I love when two comic writers, or in this case three, with contrasting styles try to like make something together. Sometimes it comes out like a bigger than the sum of their parts. And i that's how I feel about Annihilation Conquest. I think it's... The power trio. Yeah, the power trio coming together. 
uh, Abnet, Lanning, and Giffen. And um, sometimes I just like it when uh, different contrasting styles build a comic. This is how um, Matt Fraction and Ed Brubaker's uh, Iron Fist feels to me. Just like mm-hmm. those two writers are very different, and then they came together and made something that uh, played to both their strengths. And Conquest has like a lot of different fun parts that I think plays to all these writers' strengths. I think it's a, a lot stronger than Annihilation, even. I can see that. So far, I definitely feel that. Even though it, it's following a similar format, we've got our one shot and we've got a couple mini series, uh, and we haven't really gotten the main conquest part just yet. But uh, it definitely is already feeling a little bit more, a little bit more uh, not involved, but I don't know how to put it. I th- I still think so far of what we've read, the Nova issues are my favorite and the strongest. We've gotten th- three issues, four. I think I've read three so far yeah uh, three the nova issues that we read for last time when he returned yeah. to earth on shore leaf mm-hmm. i still think of all of the stuff we have read that has been my favorite and the strongest but so far this stuff has been the conquest stuff has been a lot of fun very interesting and i'm excited to see the rest in a way that i wasn't so excited in the middle of annihilation yeah that does that yeah which granted most of those mini series were kind of them spinning their wheels anyway there's going to be, unfortunately, uh, one more four-issue miniseries that's going to feel a little wheel-spinny like that. But after that, it's going to be real smooth sailing for a long time. All right. All right. Anyway, so we're going to start with uh, by talking about a one-shot issue. Uh, this is the Annihilation Prologue number one. Mm-hmm. It is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, who we'll be talking about a lot through this series. Uh, illustrated by Mike Perkins. Colored by Guru FX. And it is believed to be lettered by VC's Corey Petit, but um, this information seems to be lost to the sands of time and internet. Yep. I'm sure if we track down the original issue, we might be able to find it, but I don't want to fight with uh, Marvel Unlimited's system just yet. And I have an old trade where um, there's just a blank space where the letter should be. Probably printed there in black and white. It's crazy. It's very weird. Regardless, so we're picking up right from where Annihilation left off. And to me, this is so satisfying. This is something I love in sequels. I love it when you check in with your friends after they've had some time to grow from their experiences from the first story. It's why Mass Effect 2 is so much better than Mass Effect 1. It's why Empire Strikes (laughs) Back is so much better than A New Hope. Just like, sometimes, um... Watching them go, uh, you know, on the hero's journey and crossing the threshold and uh, taking their power and everything. It's fun to watch what happens next. And that's where we pick up here. Yeah. And it's a very different what happens next, too, because it's not really a sequel in the same way, at least not as of right now. Because you'd think that if it was, you know, the sequel to Annihilation, we'll have more of Annihilus's stuff or Ravenous because Annihilus is super dead and a baby. <laughs> for for right. reasons like you'd think that would be the thread that would be picked up and it seems like this came out i correct me if i'm wrong this came out what a few months after the end of annihilation yeah it like, wasn't this immediately. Was, there wasn't a big gap it wasn't a big gap because those nova issues what was what was filling that gap mm. um, but there was like if you were reading this in real time um annihilation would have ended and you'd be like i wonder if they're gonna do another one and then pretty quick they they picked it up which brings a different dynamic than, say, another year or even longer to return to this stuff. I also think that's just the nature of the difference between, um, like, shared superhero universes and movie series. Is that, like, in superhero universes, you're constantly jumping from one big conflict to the other. And, like, a really good, really long-running one, like a, a Chris Claremont X-Men, a Walt Simonson Thor, something like that. 
Mm-hmm. You'll jump between these completely separate feeling conflicts, but then they come together in a satisfying way many issues and years later. Yeah, you could really take your time with it in a way you can't do in the same, you know, the same, God, words. Can't do it in the same way as with movies. You yeah. could do it with TV, but then you always run the risk, I guess you do here, of getting canceled too early. Yeah, but this feels like watching uh, Star Trek in the 90s, right? There's like a lot of different things, and they're sort of related to each other. Yeah, a little bit. Although I, I would say it's more Star Wars, especially with that opening crawl. <laughs> like, I read that, and I was just like, oh, hey, hi, George Lucas. What are you doing here? What makes the opening crawl work? So the first page of Annihilation Conquest prologue uh, has an opening crawl recapping what happened in the Annihilation War, which is great. Great Star Wars-type language. And what was the highlights for you? Uh, specifically the crawl? Yeah. I think it, it might even just be the first line. It is the grim aftermath of the catastrophic Annihilation War. And then you've got your descriptions, but then the end. But the, there are immediate dangers. The broken, the desperate, the dispossessed. Torrents of displaced refugees seek new homes and emergency aid. Some of them have turned to violence to get what they want. And then we just see this little tiny bubble pop out from the planet. What? Yeah. I, why doesn't every Guardians of the Galaxy comic start with a crawl like this, right? It totally sets the mood. Completely. And it feels epic. And it's kind of undercut in a, in you know, in an intentional way with the what. But you still get the grandiosity of those Star Wars text crawls. And I guess that's, that's um, while I will make a lot of nitpicky comic book fan complaints about the Guardians of the Galaxy movies because of my affection for these comics, I love those movies. They're really fun. And they capture this tone really well, right? Like, they, they really do feel like a genuinely epic space opera, but then the characters are a bunch of goofs taking the piss out of it. Yeah. So you can have the, you have the epic backdrop, but then you have uh, the, but then the characters like run up against it um, in a real fun, almost not quite fourth wall breaking way, but like winking kind of way. Mm-hmm. Totally. I don't have much else to add on the crawl. I was just oh yeah, I, I just got real excited that you so love the crawl. I love it so much. I could even hear like the music in the background or like someone <laughs> like in in like a deep voice reading this aloud. And you cut to the stars and you pan down. I was listening to ska music when I read this, so it kind of set the <laughs> tone, unfortunately. But sometimes that happens and it's fun. Um, this comic is illustrated by Mike Perkins. Mike Perkins was a real Marvel mainstay in this time, but he was a British artist. And I think he goes back uh, working with Abnett and Lanning in their earlier career. He seems like a compatriot of theirs. But I love his stuff on this issue. It um, has that early 2000s Marvel look. He did a bunch of Ed Brubaker's Captain America and it shows. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think I think a lot of that also comes to down to Guru FX's coloring. It's very early two thousands. It's going for that photorealism with with where everyone ends up looking kind kind of shiny and almost like a three D model. Yeah, but Guru FX looks like they're having a ball on this because uh, yeah. like that aurora. There's a pink aurora erupting behind like a snow mountain temple, and this looks rad. This is like a great space design. I'm already so down with wanting to like spend time on these planets. Totally. Yeah, they they feel like, you know, planets. They don't kind of just feel like empty, nothing backdrops that you could find at a local, you know, ditch or whatever. Yeah, none of the planets uh, in the Annihilation Super Scroll series felt, felt like real places. They all just felt like no. uh, little groves. Yeah. And this planet, you're immediately like, uh, 
uh, you can feel that they have culture and you can feel that they have climate and there's just like a, there's so much that comes across in this art. Exactly. Enter our hero Philavel, who is sporting a new costume. I don't know how much I love the new costume, but I guess it works. I also don't really know Quasar's past costumes. I only know the one that he was in when he went kablooey in Annihilation. <laughs> her, I like her costume. It's just the problem is that he drew it like it was painted on. If someone drew this costume yes. as fabric, it would look awesome. Yes, I think I think that might be what's getting me. Uh, it looks like, yeah, and the coloring does it no, no, uh, no justice. And that's yeah. that's unfortunate for the this era. Yeah, this that's is un- pretty, unfortunately pretty... <laughs> endemic. Yeah. Uh, but her gauntlets look cool. The the like gold logo looks cool. The cape looks dope. Love a good cape. Marvel is uh, short on capes. And the coolest part of this look is that the stripe of her costume comes up like above the fabric onto her face, and like her eye is glowing. And there's this cool stripey scar on it. It's like asymmetric two thousands uh, faux try hard badassery at its best. I'm, I'm less sold on that, but that's because I'm like, it should be the other eye. Balance it. <laughs> but I get what they were going for. I get it. That's a good note. I get it, but... I mean, you've also got boob sun, which is a look. But again, that comes down to the the painted on look. I guess. Right. If if uh, somebody who could draw fabric, like, um, I would love to see um, uh, Jim, Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor do a Phyla of Hell comic. I bet the, the version... <clears throat> that they would draw would look awesome of this costume. Yeah, I, th- I think Connor would pull it off. I really like Connor's art. Yeah, same. So we get a look, and now Quasar, uh, ca- a.k.a. old Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Philavel. And it was, I was kind of shocked because I'm like, what? What? And then as the gears turned in my head, I went, oh, right, she picked up the quantum bands in the final battle with Annihilus. That's why she's taking on Quasar's name instead of trying to continue to be Captain Marvel. And that's good sequel stuff. Yeah, that's that's what that's what you gotta you gotta love about this. And that's sometimes comic book ongoings don't get that the stories have to be sequels to each other like that. There were, that's a dramatic turn. She's got a new power. She's got a new name. But it's uh, it, that makes sense because that's where the story is going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The planet that they're on uh, is called the uh, the Lamentous Outer World. Uh, it's apparently where Phyla's dad is and his dad and her dad is a monk space monk space monk and they're being hunted for reasons i i didn't quite understand why but it doesn't matter they just needed someone to beat up so that uh we could then get the post battle conversation between phyla and moon dragon and i'm really digging moon dragon's costume i like the weird the weird the weird collar although i i do have to say uh i think she's very cold and her boots uh her costume is redonkulous. Especially for Cold Planet. What's crazy is she's wearing this, like, amazing armored top with, like, uh, long gauntlets and these huge shoulder pads. And then just no pants. And then just, like, a swimsuit <laughs> bottom. And then Why? these huge anime robot boots. She's completely <laughs> bald. She's got huge gold earrings. And uh, I cannot argue with you. It's just, like... Um, it's one of those looks that's just, like, so insane. It could only happen in a superhero comic the year that this comic came out. Just sometimes you get that in comics, and that's amazing. And yep. this is an amazing look. She's back in the comics these days, and if you read modern Guardians of the Galaxy comics, you can definitely see this look's influence on it. They're, they definitely take parts from it. But she's got mm-hmm. more of, like, a glam David Bowie thing on top of it. It's very, it, just like uh, Moondragon gets awesome looks. She does. She totally does. And so we get some conversations. It's a bunch of, you know, 
very nice, very warm. It's also kind of ominous. We don't, there's not a lot to it at the beginning because we have to then cut to Hala. Hala? Hala. Hala sounds sillier, I guess. Hala, no, they both sound silly. They both pick sound your, silly. Pick your poison. The only yeah. way, just before we uh, leave Moondragon and Phyla, the last thing I wanted to say mm-hmm. is, um, for me at least, this was definitely the first adult gay couple I remember mm-hmm. seeing in Marvel. Like, Moondragon and Phyla are, um, I, you know, they don't say married, and it's weird to think that when these issues came out, gay marriage was not legal in the United States. Yeah. But they're functionally married and you're like, ah, they're space married. What does marriage even mean when you're a renegade outlaw warrior on the edge of space? Living with a bunch of monks. Yeah, just like, uh, who knows how stuff works out there. But you can tell that they're married and that blew my mind because in Marvel there was a lot of gay characters being introduced in this era but they were all teenagers and it just felt like adults couldn't be gay because they were all grandfathered in and there weren't gay people in Marvel in the 60s. And then and it took until, like, Iceman, but even then, like, they played with time, and... Yeah, it yeah. just had to happen in the freakiest way. So Moondragon and Phyla were, like, the highest-profile adult gay couple I remember seeing in Marvel at this time, and the only, like, lesbian couple. There was a bunch of lesbian characters, and they had a lot of drama, and they would get together with uh, supporting characters who would get murdered or whatever. That that kind of thing was happening. Yep. But here was, like, and not to say that Moondragon and Phyla are going to have an easy go of it in this run, but here was, like, a, a characters, and both of them were, like, in the ensemble as lead characters as a adult gay married couple. And I just thought that was really cool at Marvel when this came out, and I'm happy that there's even more today and better characters than this, even though I love these two quite a bit. And Perkins really captures kind of the tenderness of the relationship. 100%. Having, while they're also talking about whatever else they're talking about, like... There are multiple things going on at once, and it's very nice to see all of that. Yeah, you get that this is their normal life, that for them, being married means just like being a knight errant and a priestess going from temple to temple, getting into fights with bounty hunters. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and I love the fairy tale of that. Then we cut to Hala. Hala. I'm going to say Hala. I'm going to say Hala then. Okay. <laughs> and we get... Some more conversations. We get to see good old Peter Quill with his uh, stupid space eyeball. And he looks so much like Han Solo here. There's one panel where I'm like, he just does the the Harrison Ford smug look. And Perkins had to know what he was doing. Oh, it's that the haircut is impeccably on point. Uh, the smile is 100% Harrison Ford. He's got the same jaw shape. He's got the same nose shape. He's got the same cheekbones. They made it yeah. into Harrison Ford for this one issue. Yep. I it like really it. Works. I kind of... He doesn't have the brattiness of Chris Pratt. He's got the brattiness of Harrison Ford, and it's a nicer brattiness. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And then we've... I, I love the way Perkins draws Nova's head. I'm sorry, I'm picking up on all these small things, but, like, <laughs> there's just so many... There's so many small, fun bits to pick up on it in prologue, and a lot of that comes down to the art and whatnot, but it's got the... It, I like this kind of weird space stuff. Don't get enough of it elsewhere. Yeah, great design and um, clever technology stuff. And yeah. I'm sure in the script it was it just said something like uh, Nova calls on a holograph machine. But then Perkins is just like, what if he had a decapitated, flowing, glowy, glowy head? And it's amazing. Yeah. It looks great. It does. It looks like Power Rangers. I love it. Peter meets up with Ten Core, who is one of the other. God, the Cree. Thank you. One of the Cree Cree uh, warriors. And I, I'm like, I wrote this down because I'm like, Tencore seems like she's going to be a very important character going forward. Uh, and I, I think I'm wrong uh, <laughs> if, if, as the events of this, this issue kind of play out. But uh, I could be right 
in the future. But so far, Peter Quill is talking about they're, they're upgrading the defenses of Hala after it kind of got completely kablooied at the end of Annihilation. I love this. This is such a logical place to put Peter Quill after Annihilation. So he started off as this, like, drunk derelict who kind of rose up to second-in-command of the army. And by winning everyone's respect through his bravery in the war, um, he stayed on Hala as um, a military consultant. And now he's, like, rebuilding the army because Ronan thinks he's such a great general. And just, yeah. like, I think they really sold that. That's exactly where I would expect. And and it makes their, their war experiences seem so consequential to them. Like, this relationship feels so forged in fire in such a genuine way. Mm-hmm. Which is even reinforced by the rest of the Kree being kind of like, why is this guy here? What, yeah, what, what's, which is great. What's this, what's this Earther, what's this Terran doing telling us how to deal with our military? Uh, and he's like, because I know what I'm doing. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're like, we're the Kree. We've been fighting war since you guys were fish. <laughs> but Quill brings in, as a part of his consultants, to like help rebuild the Kree military, some consultants of his own, from the Space Knights. Elias, what's your acquaintance with the Space Knights? The Space Knights are a remnant of the era when Marvel had a lot of the Hasbro licenses, specifically ROM, Micronauts. I don't think Transformers dealt with the Space Knights. But the Space Knights were part of the ROM mythos, and because the license and everything kind of basically said, okay, Hasbro owns the rights to ROM, the toy that it was based on, and Marvel owns the rights to everything else created in the series. So when the ROM license disappeared, no one was allowed to talk about ROM Space Knight, but the Space Knights themselves survived. And now they're kind of just there doing Space Knight stuff. Uh, I think at some point, Galador, which is their home planet, blows up. Yeah, that happens and... uh, when Hickman's writing the Avengers. Yeah, that happens, and it, they've only started touching on that again in the modern X-Men stuff and in Infinity Wars, the yeah. 2018 event, which was, it was all right. It was all right, I guess. You'll see the uh, Space Knights as a thread throughout um, this yeah. whole run of comics, although they're they're very in the background. They're not a major faction by any means. And at this point, we don't really know that much about the Space Knights, and honestly, they are completely inconsequential to this issue in terms of who they actually are. Uh, yeah. For reasons that become apparent very fast. Yeah, it's a it's a real brisk issue, huh? I'm glad that they really only have two threads going on. We've got Philovel and Moondragon, and we've got Quill and, and the Hala stuff. That's it. We're not being overloaded with seven different check-ins. We're not checking in on Drax. We're not checking in on, I don't know, the, the Cami. We're not checking in on Nova. None of that. Doesn't matter. Yeah. They don't well, care. They don't matter. They, I mean, many of the people you mentioned will matter, and that's what's fun, is, um, yes, but they're but they're keeping it tight. Yes. We do check in on Ronin, but that's because Ronin is, uh, you know, directly tied to Hala when all of that happens. And what I really like about the way the issue is structured is that we cut away, and we get a scene to uh, a Philavel talking to the Quantum Bands with the spookiest font. Such spooky fonts. I'm, I'm, these bands are haunted. They have to be. Well, we you'll there's a lot more to do with the bands. Was we'll find out on the miniseries pretty soon. Well, yeah, but specifically here, I'm like, is there a demon in there? That is that is the demon font of the Marvel universe. And like lightweight, yeah, there kind of is. It kind of is. Uh, but we're, we get another heart to heart conversation between Philovel and Moondragon, where Moondragon's kind of kind of prodding her about, are you talking to the bands? 
love the soft lighting. Love these candles. Love that Guru FX is having so much fun. Just channeling Mm -hmm. the Indigo Girls into space. I love it. (laughs) And then this creature breaks into the into the monastery, and I forget what they're called, but they are part of the Cree security system. We see a splash page of them flying. Uh, They are the Cree sentries, and we first uh, met them. Uh, we last encountered them in our reading in this uh, on this podcast when we read the Kree Scroll War. They battle a Kree Sentry. They did, and that pa- that panel has been you know parodied and homaged for years and years, and it's homaged once again right here. Like this is it's different. It's a different framing, but it is clearly pulled from that because the Sentry is reaching out through a broken wall, standing tall, but there's something wrong with its eyes. Yeah, so how did turn the page? Did you, did you notice that right away? Were you just like, I did. I did. I'm like, oh, that that doesn't look like right. Why are its eyes sealed shut? I just think this is a ma- this issue paces this reveal masterfully. And there's so many like of these miniseries where the prologue you could feel like the writer didn't know what to do with the prologue. This is a great prologue, great one shot issue, and a great build to the conflict. And when you finish it, you're just like, oh shit. Yeah, which is exactly where they want to leave you. Mm-hmm. And so. The security system on Hala is starting to freak out, starting to to kind of kind of go all over the place. No one really knows what's going on. Quill is like, "Shut it all down!" And then the Space Knights are like, "No, no, no, it's going right." And the Space Knights turn to Quill, and Quill is like, "No, shut it down!" And they crush his hand with the communicator, with the, the comlink in his hand. They crush the yep. device and his hand in the process. Everything in the sky explodes dramatically above them, and the sky turns to orange flame. This is amazing. The font of the of the Space Knight changes, and we get this slow zoom in on its eyes as it kind of gets overtaken by whatever it is that overtook the Sentry. And at this point, if you are a certain kind of Marvel nerd who loved 90s X-Men shit, uh, this font and color choice is immediate. That's all you need. You'll see this, and you'll just know what's happening, and your jaw drops. Yeah, I did not. So I was like, what's going on? And But I was connecting it back to Annihilation because both felt like these big, massive infections. The first yeah. one being like, or an infestation. First one being bugs. This one is more microbial. It has that feel. But both are technologically based and, you know, big sci-fi stuff. But yeah. that's kind of what I was feeling with, with this this reveal here. And then most of the rest of the issue is, you know, just kind of emphasizing how screwed everyone kind of is. <laughs> yeah, everyone's and, getting up, everyone's getting into fights, everyone's getting into near scrapes. And just as uh, Star-Lord is looking out, um, like the stakes of this thing don't look local. It's not just like, it's like a, an apocalypse. It's like, it looks like a yeah. planetary apocalypse. And it's quickly apparent that it's even worse than that. Yeah, because they start building, all the centuries kind of combine into this huge tower and thank god this wasn't like an avatar book because then they definitely would have shown a bunch of bodies that are merged and, like I, I but i got that feeling still without it get like being visually that visceral it evoked the horror without going for the like uh the low class shock and this again it, when you see this tower getting built if you're a certain kind of marvel fan who doesn't know the font you know this tower if you've read the, the, this story again I was still in the dark. I did not know this until the final page reveal. I was like, That's what's cool. going on? I was very confused, but I was like, oh my God, I need to see this through. And this big 
beam, this sky laser goes up into the into space. But obviously, this was before sky lasers were done to death. And also, sky laser is not integral. It's just like boop, giant force field around Kree space. Philavel flies out to it, finds out that she can't pass through. She's bounced Wait, back. Wait, that's crazy, my dude. There's a force field around the entire like solar system, and yeah. everyone you know, on these planets is like trapped in it. And and um, I know obviously it's Marvel and infinite things are possible, but like this is not a not this is a, an unusual occurrence for these characters. They've never heard of a power like this. Yeah, it's genuinely scary to the the characters. I read that, and this was kind of not super. I was reading the the kind of like the story reasons for it when I saw this. I'm like, okay, they need to isolate them, and this is how they keep the rest of the universe out, and it presents another conflict. So it didn't hit me in the same way. But now that you're telling me, I'm like, I kind of undersold it, didn't I? Well, I think this has been done to death because I feel like every other Avengers event, a bunch of aliens invade and like cut off Earth from you know from the rest of the galaxy and it's like oh no uh, all those heroes who never come during the other events are going to not come for this event um this really sells the drama of it because um it's not just one planet it's the system it's just like they sell the scale of the energy and the technological freakiness of this you really are like um how are they going to sell you on a threat as scary as locusts consuming the entire universe this is like a good first step Mm -hmm. and the next the next reveal is killer yeah. Oh, it killed me. So we go back to Quill. He's yeah. he's you know fighting off infected space knights. He's in the ruins of uh of a Holland building. He sees ten core and the the entire crew. They're here to back him up. We think he he might get out. He might battle his way up. And then we just get these two panels, and everyone's been taken over. And ten core just says, "We must join together." And her eyes look like like snow static on a TV turned to no channel. Yep. And then Quill gets shot up and pushed out of building. I guess he's done. Yeah, which would be a great last page reveal, however. However, we still have a few more pages. And it's kind of just, you know, more more jobbing, more selling and building up these, these the reveal. But it's very dramatic. It's very good and well done with that. And then we find out... It is the phalanx. And I love how the the final page kind of goes. It, it's, Kree space is ours. You are ours. There is nowhere to run. There is no escape. The phalanx has completed it. And then at the bottom, the title of the issue, Conquest. Ah, perfect issue beginning to end. I love this issue. It, it, it perfectly uh, paced the, the beginning and the end to have a nice symmetry to them. Just a great comic booking. So the phalanx... Are uh, were are from X Men. They were first introduced in Uncanny X Men number three hundred five, an issue that came out in October of ninety three, and were part of um, a storyline called the Phalanx Covenant, which uh, a lot of the imagery of this is referencing to. Um, they kind of look like the Dominators from DC crossed with the Batarians from Mass <laughs> Effect. Would you say that's like the third Mass Effect reference I've made on this episode? Well, big space war with Deathbringers and cosmic cubes or whatever makes sense makes sense yeah i don't i don't have any reference for the mass effect thing unfortunately i haven't played the games sorry that's okay batarians they got a lot of eyes they got a lot of nostrils (laughs) anyway functionally the phalanx are a lot like the borg they um have a techno organic virus the to virus which you see referenced in x-men related stuff a lot Mm -hmm. it like infects a living thing and turns it into a machine 
in this story and in other failing stories, they're trying to assimilate, like, living things into being part of their machine collective, mm -hmm. which is just, like, I love great classic sci-fi bad guy. Uh, the failings kind of have their own flavor to it. And maybe notably to comic fans of the time we are recording, the phalanx are the bad guys shown uh, responsible for the potential future in Powers of Ten. Yeah, in that, that was where that was where I connected it to. I'm like, oh, so we're gonna we might get some Hickmanisms pre Hickman. A one hundred percent. This is a little piece of um, the. This has been referenced throughout the Powers of Ten bad future that he's been implying in his ep X Men epic. Interesting. So Phalanx are they're a great Marvel bad guy, and um, while Phalanx Covenant is like their 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 classic story, I think this is the quintessential one. This is like if you want to read a good Phalanx story, Annihilation Conquest. That's the one. I mean, they've done a great job of selling me. I know nothing about the Phalanx, but now I'm already like, okay, these people are a threat. What do we do now? And what we actually are going to do now is take a short break, and then we'll be back with the Star-Lord and Quasar uh, miniseries. See you then. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And welcome back. We are talking about the beginning of Annihilation Conquest, and now we are getting into the Star-Lord miniseries. Uh, this is written by Keith Giffen, illustrated by Timothy Green II, inked by Victor Olazaba, colored by Nathan Fairbain, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. I don't think this is the very last Giffen thing we will be reading, but this is the last major thing he's doing. And what's so interesting about it is it almost seems to accidentally set a bunch of things into motion that weren't planned. How do you mean? Um, well, without giving the game away, by the end of this miniseries, we're seeing the beginnings of the organization that's going to be known as the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel solidly enough like they knew there was going to be a follow-up or like they were putting a team together. It almost feels kind of random, and like the chemistry from this miniseries was so good, they were like, hey, we could put uh, Star-Lord, Rocket, Raccoon, and Groot on a team together. Maybe we could make a movie out of that one day. <laughs> Just like, like it's crazy that this is where it starts because you don't feel any of that. So much uh, characterization is not what it's going to be. There's no foreshadowing. It, it every Nothing about it uh, pretends to what is to come. Yeah, and it feels like Giffen was like, I want to do something like what I was doing on JLI. Uh, and I'm just going to show up here and I'm going to do it. And he had fun with it. Yeah, or like he was like, you know what, I could write a Marvel Suicide Squad. It's like some kind of Suicide Squad. Damn it, you, you took my joke. Yeah, <laughs> I was just, saving it. That just proves that it wasn't a joke worth making because it was obviously the <laughs> So I took the fall. I took the fall. I said the bad joke and I saved you the trouble. All right. All right. So we're starting on Starlight. And and right away, this art style is so strikingly different than the last page. It's one of those mid-2000s Marvel page turns where your eyes hurts from how uh, markedly different it is. It's like a, it's like hearing a song and then hearing the same song played in a different key. It just like sound, it, it looks dissonant to me. Yeah, I actually like this style a little bit better. 
Although I don't love Timothy Green's art, especially like his faces are very, very you know, static and I don't like them. They, they, and I, I say this as someone who likes Len Lloyd, uh, Lanel use art. And I know people accuse him of having perpetual scowls on his characters, but it, it felt, I felt it here throughout this entire series. I'm like, I don't think I see anyone crack a smile that doesn't look like they put hooks on their, their lips and pulled them up. I th- Green works in this mode that I think um, used to be more popular, and I kind of like it, where um, they're like cartoonists, where they can only draw really exaggerated faces, and that works for the superhero genre a lot of the time, because like Spider-Man and Green Goblin would look great with cartoon faces. They don't need to have realistic human faces with expressions and muscles drawn and stuff exactly. like that. And yeah. And the the alien characters and the animal characters look a lot better than the humanoid characters. Mm-hmm. And um, the more human you're supposed to be, the more freakish it looks because it's so yeah. cartoonish. This is like yeah. also not to my personal favorite style. And I think it's kind of weirdly fit for this story. But he yeah. has a lot of fun with it. And um, mm-hmm. ultimately, like, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not a deal breaker for me. It's just, it's not what I would have gone with it. It's kind of an eyebrow raise. And it makes this feel like a product of its time where they kind of were like, ah, is Timothy free? Let's have him draw this story, even though it might not be best suited to his talents. Yeah, but they do a good job. And Giffen definitely is like, all right, no one knows who this schmuck is outside of whatever I did with him in Annihilation. Let's give a quick recap of, of all of his stuff. And we open on the most pulp 40s look ever. Are you this into this? This guy fell straight out of Watchmen. He looks like uh, Adam Strange. Yeah, he looks like Adam Strange if if Owl Man was oh, yeah. trapped on Ran. <laughs> wow, that you really painted a picture for me there. <laughs> but we got a good we got a good kind of recap of where he is and how he got here uh, in a couple pages, and I appreciated that. I was just about to say, so this part, did this catch you up? Because um, mm-hmm. Star Lord, when the movie comes out, they throw all his history away. But mm-hmm. uh, up until this point, like you could feel that he had a history. So this is broadly a bunch of stories that Star Lord's appeared in since the seventies. Yeah, and it definitely feels like Giffen was trying to point out, oh, these were definitely older stories. Like, it is from a different time, a different era. He is updating him, but without, like, going full tragic sad boy. I feel like this was a this is like this deconstruction style was really popular for this era. You'd see this in, like, um, Shudder is a comic that kind of reminds me of this in tone. Mm -hmm. Or for something uh, like uh, Venture Brothers. Mm-hmm. where it's kind of taking this, like, uh, realistic's the wrong word, but, like, more emotional, deconstructive look at, like, a really pulpy thing. A lot of Jeff Lemire comics are like that. Yeah. Like, a Jeff Lemire Star-Lord would be really cool, I think, coming out of this. I would be... That would be really interesting. I'd be excited to see that. Although I don't know how... Because I think I think Ewing did a good job with kind of channeling a bit of that in the most recent Guardian stuff. Yeah. No, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I dug it so much. And, yeah, now you're making those connections, right? He talks about um, the Master of the Sun and his relationship with the talking ship who was his everything. Yeah. Gotta love when that happens. <laughs> He had to. Bl- he blew up this colony to kill this bad guy, which uh, decision he hoped saved a lot of people, but it made him a criminal, and he uh, regrets all the lives that were lost that he was unable to save. Just like real good, yeah, pulp hero stuff. It's um, it's tragic, but not heavy. It's like uh, mm-hmm. it's like fun. I want to tie this actually back to Dante's uh, Paradiso. 
You always do. <laughs> I always do. But the reason why is, so I don't know if it was just my translation or this was actually what it was, but near the end of Dante ends up in paradise. He's in like the, I don't know, eighth globe sphere of heaven or whatever. And they're talking about Jesus. And they're like, there he is. There is the sun. He is living in this rose, which is also his house, which is also giving birth to him and also his wife. And I'm like, what? Dante, what are you doing? And that's and what so Star-Lord that, reminds you of? No, Star-Lord and his ship. Oh. That had the same energy as Dante talking about Jesus's rose petal house. I think it was a tulip. And that's a really good tone for Star-Lord. He's slightly psychedelic. He's like a... You feel like he had this, like, psychedelic life, and then he became, like, a burnout cynical Han Solo, but who was, like, a really hard-going hippie before that. Yeah. And so, after we get our recap, you know, what's his face? Peter, Peter Quill. I can't believe I blanked on his name. We literally just said Star-Lord 700 times. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting uh, reconstructed after being shot and, you know, thrown out of a building on... What is it called? Aladon Prime, a Cree world all the way on the fringe system. And he no longer has the eye. Yeah, and Timothy Green II does a hell of a job. That surgery machine is nuts. Oh, yeah. Just real fun and cartoony. And yeah, and he's gotten his um, cyborg parts taken out, which was like a weird dissonant thing. Right when we first saw him, you're like, uh, Star-Lord doesn't have a robot eye. And now he doesn't. He's closer to the Star-Lord we're familiar with. I'm very glad they got rid of it. Uh, I think it was... A good look change. I think they were trying to get away from the generic science fiction broody guy. And I mean, he kind of looks just like another science fiction generic broody guy without the eye. But I like it. I like the aesthetic without the eye. Yeah, same. The the eye already looked dated at this time. And I think they were kind of uh, aware of it. It looked like a real 90s choice because it was. Yeah. And then we get our... You know, obligatory walking through the cells, picking your team. Uh, so Star-Lord is, is basically given given the task to... What is it he's tasked to do? I don't honestly remember. It, it's like a generic spy war task. They're blowing up a, a phalanx replication factory right. that's like printing guys. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. So he's walking through and they're going to assemble their team. They meet all the people. So I want to so do a, I got a roll call here and I got, okay. um, for, uh, first up we, uh, run into a bug, AKA lover bug. What was his crime? His only crime was love making. Yeah. His only crime was a uh, Cree purity, which I thought was like a great, gross, creepy Cree thing because Cree society is often gross like that. And I mm-hmm. like that, um, it makes you really root for the criminals and uh, outlaws when the culture is so gross. Just I, I yeah. thought that it was effective. Anyway, um, Bug, you're, you, you might be surprised to learn, is like a really integral member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I am surprised to learn that because I don't think I've ever read a comic with him before this. He almost was. They um. Made, there was one comic they made when they des- with the Guardians when they decided to make the movie, and it was gonna be the movie team, and Bug was in it. He was in the earliest drafts of the movie script, uh, but he got he got cut. Um. So, yeah, we came really close to Bug having a lot of action figures. Anyway, long story short, he's one of the Micronauts. You were talking about the <laughs> Space Knights before. So Bug mm-hmm. is normally microscopic, and he's got like a cool. Uh, quarterstaff stick and he clicks and he hops around and he's got special antenna that let him have a like daredevil radar sense almost mm-hmm. 
Um, and clearly he's not tiny right now. There is no explanation offered or given of like why he's full size and not in the microverse anymore. But here he is in jail. Because they don't own the rights anymore. <laughs> yeah. So he just, yeah, they don't own the rights. But um, although I think Hasbro did make toys of this character bug, um, he, Marvel had the rights in the end. Yep. I would not be surprised. Next up is Death Cry. Great name. You're into Great Death Cry? Name. She is a minion of Death Bird. Death Bird? Yeah, who uh, re- most recently in the comics showed up in uh, Jonathan Hickman's arc at the beginning of New Mutants. Uh, uh, Deathbird is the sister of Empress Lilandra, and she's always trying mm-hmm. to, to topple her. And yeah. uh, Death Cry is like her, her heavy, you know? Mm-hmm. Her yep. berserker minion. But Death Cry actually showed up um, in Avengers number uh, 363 in the early 90s. So she's like an Avengers villain when they're fighting the Shi'ar and stuff. And um, I think huh. she's supposed to be a distant cousin of the Shia royal family. Gotcha. I just think that's all crazy. From this, you would be like, yeah, they just wanted to make up like a cool Shia for this one-off story. But no, nah, she's got issues. She's been in stuff. Wow. Yeah, and we got a few more. Oh, yeah. So next up, we got Mantis. You know Mantis. She's been in the movies. Yeah. She's a little different here. She's way different here. She was originally a Vietnamese woman who was on the Avengers in the 70s, and then she got tossed by some real mystical cosmic shit, and now she thinks that she's destined to give birth to the Messiah, a prophecy that um, gets mentioned a lot here but doesn't go anywhere and finally gets fulfilled at a story that came out in 2020. Oh. 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 Suddenly, aren't you, like, interested in going back after you read the uh, space background, and you're like, oh, some of this stuff means stuff. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the event did not make me feel that. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, but here's the uh, Mantis's whole thing. is She thinks one day her uh, kid is going to be the Messiah. Oh, wow. And that gets foreshadowed a little bit more uh, before the end of what we're, the issues we'll be discussing today. Exciting. Next up, we've got um, Captain Universe. Uh, this one's name is Gabe Vargas, who is a U.S. soldier who's implied to be coming uh, in from Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that. Captain Universe is a, uh, got crazy levels of power. It's the power of the whole universe, in fact. It's very ill-defined. As you do. It's a plot device. Um, most notably, um, uh, was it played a role in a, Spider- a famous Spider-Man story called uh, Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut. <laughs> that's, I think that's probably the most famous um, two issues of Marvel featuring the, the, the Captain Universe powers. Um, Hickman will later pick up on Captain Universe, and we'll be tracing, he's actually pretty important to the series. The, while the individual's not important, the power is something interesting mm-hmm. to track through, like, Marvel stories over time. I think Captain Universe ha- featured in A-Force, and then in the early Champions. Yeah, that's correct. That was a ca- Captain Universe uh, named uh, Tamara DeVoe, if I recall. Yes, I think so. She's gonna get the power to two people after uh, Gabe here. Gotcha. Alright, and then we got our good friend... Rocket Raccoon, just like holy shit! This is um, he already looks just like Rocket Raccoon. I love the way he's drawn under Timothy's in Timothy's art style. I really like this Rocket Raccoon draw, drawing. Me too. And while and it's perfect to contrast him with uh, Captain Universe, who looks uh, disturbing, and he's supposed <laughs> to be a human being. And the Rocket Raccoon looks amazing. I want to be his best friend. Uh, but then we get Groot, Monarch of Planet X. So what do we think of Rocket and Groot's characterization here? Very different, huh? Very different. Although, I mean, I, I mean, Rocket's kind of already, kind of this, kind of the same. He's a little bit less wisecracking, but he's definitely got that. What's the word? I, he, he's basically giving everyone the middle finger. He's like, "Shut up, I'm here." He's got a chip on his shoulder, but he's yeah. much sweeter here. He wants to be friends with people much more outwardly. 
the movies really played up his insecurity a lot, and here he seems a lot more lovable. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is also because they completely changed Groot. Right, and that's the even more alarming character. For, for one, Groot can talk in full sentences. Yeah, and he's also super pretentious. Yeah, which is not what you would think with Groot uh, from his how he looks in the movies at all, or even later comics. Or how he, how he acts in the movies either. Uh, but he can talk, he's real highfalutin, and this version of Groot is real um, concerned with being the king of Planet X. So just, uh, I... So Rocket Raccoon actually first appeared in Incredible Hulk number 271 in 1982, uh, but quickly it became kind of like, I called him a highfalutin joke character. It was like sort of a Beatles reference, and it was, right? It was, like Rocket mm-hmm. Raccoon is like a whole, uh, it's a joke, but not like a lowbrow gag, like a, like a, he was like a satirical character. Yeah. And Groot is from Monster Comics. He was from a Stan and Jack issue of um, Astonishing Tales uh, that came out in 1960, so pre-Fantastic Four, pre-Marvel Universe. That would explain why he's the monarch of Planet X. That right. feels it... like a very 60s moniker. Now, are you ready to have your mind completely blown? Does he have a, a secret stash of Illudium Fosdex, the shaving cream, Adam? Oh, I don't know what that's from. That sounds like a Doctor Who. No, it is Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. I should have known that. I love Duck Dodgers, or I did when I was a small child. A wee child. But so according to Marvel Wiki, this Groot, this is his first appearance. Um, Later, there's going to be a bunch of retcons involving how the memories of Flora Colossus are passed around and who Groot really is. And it turns out that um, the Groot that is the monarch of Planet X that um, menaced Earth in 1960s um, is not the same tree as this tree, but memories have been passed on through a series of retcons that we're never going to talk about because they happen in much later comics. Alrighty. Um, but that just blows my mind. I just uh, there, He's referencing old, the old classic Groot stories, but he is not that Groot. Gotcha. All right. Anyway, they get a bunch of Earth guns because they uh, are going on this suicide mission and they can't use technology because the phalanx will just assimilate it. Which, it's one of those things where I do this too. Where you say tech and you mean like computer technology and, and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but guns are their technology. I guess I would have appreciated a line like anything with a circuit board or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Because it's analog. It's an analog technology versus a a more digital technology. Guns are like very uh, old-fashioned technology, right? It's just gunpowder. It's chemicals and and mechanics. It's not uh, Mm the... There isn't any electricity in guns. I mean, I don't know shit about guns. Do they they power... Wait, wait, wait. Does, Does the phalanx infect electricity? I well, think that's I'm, how it works. But I, that's how Keith Githen probably thinks it works. Mm. He's not an electrical engineer. He's not a computer scientist. He's a guy who wrote a sitcom in the 80s. They're using f- flashlights, so clearly they can't infect batteries. Um, which are also just chemicals. Yeah, so pro- probably anything with a circuit board. I'm sure when Hickman writes about this in his X-Men grand finale, he's going to clarify this and it's going to blow our minds. And But we're also going to have to reread the issue like seven times to understand how exactly he's blowing our minds. And then we will say, thank you, Mr. Hickman. <laughs> anyway, and at the end of this issue, they um, uh, this team, this nameless team that's like mm-hmm. some kind of suicide squad is outfitted with uh, new uniforms. And they look pretty cool. Yeah, they're very baggy, which is kind of funny, but it makes it actually look like, you know, clothing. Which is a big improvement over the painted on thing in the first issue. God, yeah. 
I like how Star-Lord gets his logo on it because Ronin wanted to send Star-Lord a message. I also like that throughout yeah. this, Ronin still trusts Star-Lord. He's just like, he might have fucked up. He might have let the, he might be responsible for letting the Phalanx come here, but then uh, let him try to redeem himself. He's a war hero. Yeah. And um, I like that Ronin's respect is through here, but also Ronin's just like, you're the legendary Star-Lord and like, you better bring Get it. Get your shit together. Yeah, I just, uh, I, this tough love Ronin relationship is really fun. Mm-hmm. I like that Captain Universe has the Captain Universe logo, which is a bunch of interconnected circles on his his uniform. Oh, I didn't know that's what that was. Yeah, ta- uh, Tamara DeVoe and uh, Spider-Man when he becomes Captain Universe a couple times. And X-23 in one story that I really like. Ooh. They get covered in little interconnected polka dots. That's like how you know that you have the Captain Universe power in you. Mm, gotcha. I like that Mantis has a um, skirt made out of like fringe it just like looks cool and they let they can pose it and she has this like cool silhouette when she kicks it's a fun look that's a that's what you want from a costume you want it to be easily recognizable from a distance and in silhouette and so that when it changes across artists you can still recognize the character yeah and so i think um the comic and cartooning skills of uh Although, like, I, again, uh, Timothy Green is, like, not drawing what makes the most sense here. He's, like, really got the skills. He's clearly good at what he does. Yes. And then we get some more fighting. They're infiltrating one of the Phalanx worlds. The Phalanx really, really do look like the uh, the Dominators here. They're kind of just these floaty, floaty guys with big teeth and eyes. And, like, this exposed brain in a case... With no bottom half. They're very weird. They're very weird looking. I, I, I dig it, but like... I they're, they're, I think their face is kind of generic. Their face doesn't tell you anything about what kind of characters they are. But I like their like weird floatiness. Because yeah. um, that kind of implies that they can like put together different body parts as needed. Because they're kind of like nanotechnology. Uh, their consciousness is like very different than ours and they can like inhabit different forms you just gotta get the feeling that their mind isn't tied to their form in this profound way and i think that comes across in their visual design yeah so we get some more infiltration the team hasn't really gelled together fighting yeah they don't really like each other my notes for a lot of the next stretch of issue says uh and so they do dirty dozen stuff they don't get along they cover each other's backs Yep, and it's just and it's good. Like mm-hmm. um, I, their banter is good. Rocket and Groot are together. For, this is the first time Rocket and Groot have ever been in an issue together, and um, immediately you see why they need to be a duo. Like to the right, like there's a a Switch game came out in 2019 where Rocket and Groot were one character together. They're like officially a quintessential Marvel duo, and that just happened randomly in this issue. They were just like, uh, it would be fun if the raccoon had a gun and sat on top of the tree. And that's like, uh, I, I just blows my mind what humble origins this friendship has. And Giffen's even like, he doesn't even have them start off separately. They're just in their cells, and then he instantly puts them together. He's like, wouldn't this be fun? Somebody says, the raccoon wants to hang out with the tree. And then instantly, Rocket's just like, Groot, old buddy. And it's just like, you're like, yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> it's just, I think it's magical to see that happen. And it's yeah. in such a weird miniseries, right? If you weren't doing this, like, long read of this, you would never go back and read the Guardians of the Galaxy issues and get to see this. Like, uh, this is a miniseries that's part of an event that's the sequel to another event from a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, without the context of the event, there's not really a reason to read this miniseries. Yeah. I feel like a, I feel like comics don't feel this spontaneous anymore. When there's a new character, they build to them for months, and uh, they make a big press announcement about it. I I, I feel like um, this happens so organically in this way that you hardly get to see. This yeah. is something I love about wrestling, where 
the the quintessential buy-in for loving wrestling is the understanding that um if the wrestler wins enough hearts, if enough people buy their t-shirt, if the the crowd cheers loud enough, no matter what, they will be able to break through any barrier and be the top wrestler. Because if enough people love them, if they sell enough tickets, that's what matters at the end of the day. And it feels like democratic in a way. And Rocket and Groot feels democratic too. It's not the corporation saying, hey, you like the taste of this. A bunch of people were just like, yo, give me this forever. And then they did. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta say, I hate, I hate press releases. <laughs> yeah, me too. Super press releases. Honest. Worst hate part em. of comics. Worst part of comics. What they should do is they should hire wrestlers to teach them how to do wrestling promos, <laughs> and then they should just promo their comics. <laughs> well, I think Chip Zdarsky already tries to do that. Yeah, so everyone should just be Chip Zdarsky. Elias, you're a goddamn genius. <laughs> yeah, do that, and don't be like DC, who send their uh, press releases to the New York Times to break stories days before the issue comes out. And put your Chip Zdarsky in the main event at WrestleMania. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, 2025, Chip Zdarsky fights uh, the, the Undertaker? I think The Undertaker's dead. In real, I mean, in real life, Undertaker's alive. Oh. Well, I, I, I thought he may have died in the last course. Um, yeah, he looks uh, he looks pretty rough these days, but he wrestled as recently as uh, 2020. Oh, oh, okay. It was well, kind of cool. Speaking, speaking of characters that are almost definitely, certainly dead, uh, Death Cry. Whoops. Yeah, so... So one of the weird uh, bantery things that happens between two characters in this is that um, Captain Universe, who's very powerful, keeps on having to, like, curb his power to not blow up the whole planet and um, taking away kills one at a time from Deathstrike. And this is, like, a huge offense in Shi'ar warrior culture. And it finally sends her into a berserk bloodlust and uh, Gabe is forced to vaporize her. And what I like about how this comes across is both what the story sells it as, at least to me, my read of this, was that... um, these two characters were from two different armies with two different cultural expectations and mores that were, like, coming up against each other, and there was this, like, cultural incompatibility in the group, and that's a cool sci-fi idea. And that um, Deathcry needed to fight Gabe to the death because Gabe kept on stealing her kills, so Gabe killed Deathcry, which is, like, totally traumatic to him because friendly fire is a concept that he understands, but not one that he accepts. And even so, he saw all of it, all of the saves were kind of second nature they were just kind of happening because he's so powerful he like yeah. he, he could hardly help not killing a bunch of bad guys and it's it's a good it's, it's a very good moment even though death guy cry kind of gets pretty brutally murdered and this this haunts him for a while but don't you worry, Deathcry will be seen in one other comic after this, and that is she is one of the villains who gets to come back, brought back from the dead in Chaos War, an incredible Hercules story. Huh. I fucking checked my back issues. I Wow. Kn- and that's nuts, huh? Yeah. Oh my god, incredible Hercules. Ooh. Great run. But anyway, we're talking uh, the Suicide Squad of the Galaxy, and they are... Um, um, and I guess what's interesting, the interesting turn is after... Deathcry gets vaporized. Um, it turns into much more of a guerrilla war, and we get we get a lot of Star Lord kind of uh, you know, hacking hacking through a system. They gotta put on disguises. They're hiding in they're like hiding in the walls and abandoned buildings. They're captured. Yeah, as it's you like do. It's, it, but um, it morphs into like an insurgency story that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way. <laughs> there's just this one panel of Groot and he looks horrifying he looks horrifying it's when they're surrendering he's like no you will not surrender Groot commands it 
uh, yeah, he looks regal and horrifying. Rocket is cute. Mantis's little face is real cute, too. Love how he's drawing Bug. I'm kind of getting into this Timothy Green as I'm flipping through this. I like that when he wants to show sizes sometimes, he'll do a little magnifying glass to emphasize the different sizes of the different characters. I think that's really fun. When Groot gets really tiny. Oh, yeah, and then... tiny Groot. So baby Groot is like an, is, is here from day one, right? When modern Groot shows up, they already do the thing where he can die and come back as a baby. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't come back as, you know, as a baby. He just comes back as a tiny version of big Groot, which makes it even funnier when he's like, Groot commands you, and he's like an inch tall. Groot commands you. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great bit. Yep. And again, like, I guess it's not memorable enough to um want to, like, emphasize every beat, but, like, it's a great little adventure story. I love the part where the rats come running out, and then they're shooting the rats, and then the robots come, and they're shooting robots, and um, they manage to make—they uh, hit upon the emotions where Gabe has to get past his shock and trauma at killing uh, Deathcry, and then he's like, wait, these are machines? Then I've decided that they are not people, and it's cool to kill them, and that, like—but, uh, like, a. Uh, that gets played with a little bit. Like, there's a bunch of uh, yeah. weird little and he like, has to relinquish the, the universal force in order to allow everyone else to hack in so that they can get access. And then he reclaims the universal the universe force from one of the, the phalanx that it possessed. And, yeah, and this actually yeah. kind of turns into a Gabe story by the end. He's making most of the choices. Um, Mantis is pretty fantastic. Uh, she gets in a tough spot, but she comes back and she ends up rescuing them. I love that she uh, can see um, into the future and is super annoying about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love annoying precogs. Um, and I love that she's just, like, super weird and spiritual. She's just real, like, hippy-dippy. I love Mantis. I In the movies, I like that interpretation of her, too, but I love this, like, weird wise one who uh she's got like a yoda vibe to me yeah she's got like a secret wisdom but ultimately yeah it ends with um their mission is a success and it yeah it comes together pretty easily um but gabe has to uh learn to control and then give up the the uniforce the uniforce is actually from here is heading off to a dan slot spider-man issue to um fight the juggernaut and then to become the juggernaut okay Huh. And then after that, it's going to go to Tamara DeVoe and become um, a Hickman Avengers character who's pretty important to the mythos of his overall story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, we end it with the, the the this team that doesn't have a name. A lot of them survive. Gabe loses his legs, but he gets some cool robo legs. And he loses the Captain Universe powers. Yeah, he gives up the powers and they move on to uh, to the next story. But on the last page of this, uh, we've got, like, a, a team that's ready to go that's looking a little bit like the Guardians of the Galaxy. We got Star-Lord, Mantis, Groot, Rocket, and Bug. It's even got that, like, that posing of this is definitely going to be an important team. What's funny, though, is <laughs> it's got that posing, but um, but there's no, like, I would see them next time in. It's just, like, um, I feel like this is how you would end an issue like this. Just like, hey, maybe someone else will want to pick up the threads, or not. And then they did in a huge way. Although, I, I absolutely love how Quill is, shows up and he's just like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Great. These guys are here. And that's just classic Quill, right? Yep. Classic Quill. Two other things I want to call attention to in uh, today's reading is, one is, I love the Cree names in this. I feel like, uh, I don't know, there's just like a a vibe, a tone, an aesthetic to naming Cree stuff to make me like it, and this book really gets it. Mm -hmm. It's these like, uh, I didn't write down the names of all the Cree guys, but they, um, 
they, they all have like these simple names with a dash in them, and it's clearly based on Marvel, and some of them make up English words in this fun way. I think later we're gonna get introduced to a major Cree character named Raven, <laughs> and I I just think that's a fun aesthetic. It's got like a Dungeons and Dragonsy thing. Um, I guess something that's important to me about these comics is I was reading them when I was in college, and that's when I was getting back into playing D and D. And a, this, a lot of my Dungeons and Dragons campaign that I was running in college was inspired by these comics. So, like, a lot of the naming conventions and stuff, like, really, you know, got into my, uh, got under my skin. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I guess I'm realizing that's why I have so much affection for them. These were the comics that I was reading when I was, like, writing my own stories with friends. And, like, so having those sorts of, like, two-syllable dash names, that, that's definitely something that I subconsciously borrowed. And, um, some of the dynamics between, um the different alien races in this probably affected to how I was characterizing elves and dwarves and gnomes and stuff. I guess uh, I'm realizing that on the air, but it's a, it's a neat thing. I, I thought the Star-Lord series was neat. How did you like it overall? I mean, I had a lot of fun. It did feel kind of inconsequential. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of light, yeah. but it's slight and fun. Kind of like kind of like Giffen's other miniseries during Annihilation. They were They were fun. They were there. And they tied into the main the main stuff, but like, we didn't really need it. What sets this above that for me is that at the end of his Annihilation miniseries, I was like, yeah, that was fun, but inconsequential. But after this, I want to see somebody follow up and write this. If yes. you told me that my favorite writer was writing, what was Giffen doing? Like, uh, prior to this, what was his Annihilation miniseries? Which ones was he in charge of? Uh, I think he did. Well, he did Drax. Right, so he's doing he the Drax one, did. and I'm not. I'm not asking Silver for Silver Surfer. That's right, what I did. and I'm. I'm not asking for a Drax miniseries after Giffen's Drax, and I didn't need a Sil- that Silver Surfer miniseries was fine, and it felt like a good Silver Surfer story, and maybe one day there'll be a miniseries. But after mm-hmm. reading um, Annihilation Star Lord, if you're like, we're gonna do a Star Lord ongoing, and the coolest Marvel writer of uh, this year came out, so like, who was that? Like Ed Brubaker, or Matt Fraction, or Kelly Sudaconic? Mm-hmm. Just like you told me one of them was writing a Star-Lord comic um, with this as the supporting cast, I would be like, sign me up. And then they do. It's called Guardians of the Galaxy and Abnett and Lenny write it. It's fantastic. Hell yeah. We'll but get we're there. Still, yeah, we're when not there we yet. There. We're almost there. But <laughs> almost. Uh, for now, we're talking about another Annihilation Conquest miniseries, and that is the Quasar miniseries. This one has a different creative team, though. It is written by Christos Engage. Illustrated by Mike Lilly, inked by Bob Almond, Scott Hanna, uh, Mark McKenna, and Roland Paris. Colored by Stefan Peru, and lettered by VC's Joe Caramanga. Um, of those people, I want to just uh, make special note of the writer, Christos Gage. Are you a big Christos Gage reader, Elias? I've read some of his stuff. Uh, I've read a few of his IDW things. I read his Superior Spider-Man a few other of the Marvel things he was involved in. Uh, but you, you are the big Christos Gage fan. I am a big Christos Gage fan. And one thing I love about Christos Gage is I think he is one of the masters of comic book pacing. He figures out how many issues he has to work with the story, and he builds the story around that. And you always feel the beginning, middle, and the end, unless somebody lied to him about when that book was getting canceled. <laughs> but, like, yep. the the reason that Superior Spider-Man run is so good is he's like, how many issues am I going to get for this? Like, 15? 18? Just tell me how many issues is, and I will write the perfect comic story. And he does. It fits exactly in the number of issues. Yeah. I've, and I felt that here. Yeah. It was a perfect four-issue miniseries. It moved at exactly the right pace. It had the rise and the fall and the grand finale as the size demanded. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call the thing perfect, but... 
No, I, I guess of, I, in terms of the the pacing. Not yet. Not all the ideas are equally interesting, but they yeah. all all the beats happen in the right in their proper place. Mm-hmm. So we get we open up and we get uh, Quasar in a costume that actually looks like a costume. Which is very nice. It looks like fabric. Yes, it's fabric now, and it is a good look. Yeah, this proves that this is the the underlying look was good. Yep. Uh, also, Crazo's mom sucks. Oh my god, that was crazy. The craziest part about that is so uh, Quasar is like flying through an obstacle course uh, back when she's training to be Captain Marvel, and she's like, "You see, mom, I beat everyone's record except for dad's. It was the second best anyone's ever done the obstacle course." And her mom's just like, "Wow, you're a failure, just like your brother. By the way, he's dead." <laughs> <laughs> And that's insane. It's the, I was like with her. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know this archetype. She's being the tough parent and nothing's ever good enough for her. And then she's just like, and also your failure is going to make you dead like your brother. And she's like, he's dead? Like, this is how she broke the news to her. Yep. And then we cut away to today on the fringes of the Kree Empire, where uh, Quasar and, and Moondragon are in a ship. Moondragon has a big explodey head problem. That's how you describe mind bursts or whatever. Well, the important thing is that Gage is uh, putting on the heat. He's turning like he's he's the clock is ticking. Each of these heroes like really feels like they're desperate. They're in untenable situations that's gonna kill them unless uh, they can like solve it. In um and we'll learn that for both of them in a moment. But um in Moondragon's case, it's these like psychic outbursts she's been having, mm-hmm. and they're being attacked by who's it called the by the phalanx. And Quasar gets this really cool splash page where she manifests this big sword and there's lightning and she's like, oh, that's like a and- great superhero look, right? That sword is iconic. I just um, th- there was a couple of like cartoons and little uh, merchandising things a mm-hmm. little bit after this series where Quasar looked like this. Mm-hmm. And I'm just real bummed that uh, Philovel isn't Quasar with like a... a, a I, my by the end of this, I love Phyla and Moondragon. I love them from in this miniseries. I love them from all these comics we're going to be reading, and it's so sad to me. And I'm going to say a little homophobic that they get got cut out of the movies uh, as the main lesbian couple and like two of the major female characters. I just like they really got marginalized. And at this point, like people know Mantis, she got brought back in, and that's great. I love Mantis too. Uh, people know Cosmo because they kept on putting him in as a gag in the movies, but, like, uh, Phyla and Moondragon have gotten so marginalized, uh, that people don't even realize that they're members of the Guardians, and they're, like, mm-hmm. core members. They look great. They have huge powers and big emotions. That's what happened to me. I didn't know they were part of the Guardians until I started reading some of the comics. I'm like, who are these people? And, and they then look I read more. I'm like, oh, these people are actually pretty cool. Although I think I first encountered them in Infinity Wars, and that it sounds so- tough. <laughs> yeah, I- I'm sorry, Jerry. I-, I don't mean to drag your big event comic, but it wasn't very good. It's kind of a romp. It's just it's like an inessential romp that's really confusing if you haven't read a lot of other comics. Yeah, I think that might have been my problem. <laughs> Um, anyway, they get menaced not only by the phalanx, but by a classic Marvel villain, the Super Adaptoid. Which is a pretty intense fight, especially after, well, actually, as the Super Adaptoid continues to turn into other Avengers and is just monologuing the whole time. But we also have these captions from, from Phyla Vell's perspective, and we kind of see Phyla start to kind of kind of fall to the dark side a little bit she just she starts channeling death cry basically yeah she goes like berserk and she starts yelling like murder smash and destroy eventually 
they're beating up the super adaptoid and they escape. They now, escape I love planet. the choice of super adaptoid for this story. And this is also just why I think Christos Gage is... Mm-hmm. Um, Christos Gage is one of those guys who... I don't know that he's ever written this like essential masterpiece that everybody needs to read, but like all of his stories are like consistently like B plus minimum in my opinion of Christmas Cage, <laughs> and like like maybe he never does A plus work, but it's almost always B plus if not A. And so Super Adaptoid makes so much sense because Super Adaptoid is a character that like corrupts the legacy of the Avengers. And this is Phyla Bell's big legacy story. She's grappling with the legacy of her dad, the original Captain Marvel. She's grappling mm-hmm. with the legacy of Quasar, whose name she just took, making this like a classic superhero legacy comic. So having a, a villain who represents the dark side of that is just like superhero myth-making 101, and it's a clinic. Just like layup, swoosh. <laughs> exactly. I don't have as much a connection with good old super adaptoid but I do have a connection with the next group introduced after Philovella and Moondragon <laughs> make their way down to the planet, and we meet the Kotati. Yeah. What? What's your? Do you have a word for this feeling that that made you feel? Where you're just like, I know those guys from another story. Sad. It made you sad. I. I it's exciting though. It's just a uh, you recognize your your friends from the other part of the comic. Yeah. Yeah. I. I guess I say sad because. You thought they deserved a better shot. Yeah, I thought they deserved a better shot. But also, there's such a minor footnote in this, but they're directly tied to kind of some of the stuff that's going on with the the Shi'ar and the Kree and all of that. I I love that um, there's all these implied stories happening in the background. They could simmer for so long and uh, then, like, erupt into a big, mediocre event. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although I don't think th- this group of Kotati ever made it because after another good heart-to-heart and the two, the couple sleeping together very adorably in a tree, uh, everything catches on fire when the super adaptoid attacks. Yeah, and you really get uh, how displaced these refugees were in that mediocre event. The, look at how marginalized they are in these major space wars. Yeah, they're just, they're basically just there to be uh, fodder, I guess, yeah. which is deeply unfortunate and something that I kind of wish they, obviously they don't go into it here, but I wish they would. I wish one of the miniseries kind of dealt with that kind of stuff because this one, I think it could have been really interesting to kind of go into the fringes of a war. Like, Annihilation never really talked about that it's like but what happens on the ground Mm -hmm. during these wars to the people that aren't actively fighting it Uh, we don't really explore any of that we're not exploring it here either this is you know quasar's story this is moon dragon's story it's the story of the two of them and that's kind of what we get for the rest of it it's a lot of we slowly find out backstory of the two of them uh, and kind of the, the their conflicts with each other, with themselves, with their past. And the rest is kind of there just to help facilitate that. The super adaptoid attacks. It's like a chase That's story. They uh, they're, they're on the run and they're trying mm-hmm. to... Uh, Moondragon's trying to get her mental outbursts under control. And Phylavel is also having these like rages... Um, that she's trying to get under control, while also the quantum bands are uh, are like ticking down; they're running out of juice. Yeah, um, which is another cut off from yeah the force X field or whatever. 
Well, the force field is blocking like the cosmic energies, mm-hmm. which is trippy, and I like it. But um, that's a bunch of ticking clock stuff, and then it's like a chase story. They need to—they're on the run. They can't be super adapted until they get a power up or something, and um, they are—and their power is running down. They need to like—they need to turn their, around the momentum. And I love that this story has like propulsive momentum and then a turning point. I think that's good. I also something I like about all these stories in general is. Something that I think got lost for a while in the middle and we're just starting to repair is this feeling that there's like a galactic society and there's all these different alien races and that the... Because uh, by the end of the Bendis stuff, it was such a churn of like planets exploding and civilizations crumbling mm-hmm. that there wasn't enough stability or status quo to check in. It just it, it felt like nothing. And while here the Kotati are completely marginalized by this story, when they show up eventually in... I can't even remember the name of that... Uh, Empire with a Y. Oh, I thought you were reaching for something else. <laughs> when they, when the Kotati finally show up in Empire, um, you feel their desperation in that. Like, that's right. They're like desperate, and they they've been um, their lands have been taken, and they've been pushed again and again and again by all these forces. And this is an example of just like another terrible indignity that while this war was raging, there was just like a bunch of a huge number of Kotati was wiped out, like in the background. And I like when they have the action consequence. And I think that for the rest of this run that we're reading, you'll feel that on the galactic scale. Like, you'll feel the rising powers, how the Kree are diminishing because they're getting hit by war after war, and that, like, is creating a power vacuum that's letting the Shi'ar become ascendant. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's they do all, a great that's job. That's all good stuff. Good long-term stuff. Meanwhile, though, yeah, we get um, we get Phylavel, and she's, like, this noble warrior, and there's this voice calling out to her, guiding her, um, and it's kind of unclear who it is. Um, do you want to you wanna do the reveal of who's uh, infected her quantum bands? Yeah, it's good old supreme intelligence. Aw, yeah. Big, creepy, floating green head. Also the previous Grazar, but who's counting? And also the corruption of Annihilus. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what was causing all of the Smash Van Destroy evil. Yeah, and that's right, like... Right, right. A- that's such a cool echo that um, Quasar was there for that final battle, which felt like such a pivotal moment for the Marvel Universe. And this is like an echo of that, is that the dark spirit of the, her defeated enemy is like corrupting her power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we also see that Phylavel, uh, so that Moondragon had this crazy backstory where um, she merged with an ancient demon called the Dragon of the Moon to enhance her psychic powers, NBD. As you do. As, As one you do. does. I'm a big fan of um, just on the adventure. It's a romance comic, and a lot of the plot beats are emotional, where it's about these two partners trying to like support each other while they're both crumbling and falling apart and being chased by what's essentially Space Terminator. <laughs> yeah, a little bit more quippy, but yeah, it's basically a two one thousand. But then we get up to what is my favorite part of this comic and my favorite part of the reading for either of these two, two today. And that is where we learn that the thing that's been causing Moondragon's psychic outbursts is that uh, she thought she had conquered the Dragon of the Moon, whose name she took in her hubris because she thought she had defeated it. Um, but she hadn't, and it's awakening, and it's trying to corrupt her. And she finally like embraces this power and reveals a superpower she had not yet mentioned to us which is that she has the power to shapeshift into a dragon. Um, and it's super fucking cool. Yeah, and Phylavel's stoked about it. She's like, that's a dope superpower. You can turn into a demon dragon. Love it. And then Moondragon's like, um, but I can only do it once. <laughs> it's a one-way street. Yeah. 
Um, and that is baller. That's the coolest thing ever. And it it offers a bit of a conflict there, not necessarily... Well, partially because, you know, it's a one-way street into dragon territory. But uh, Philovelle kind of... She feels a little bit hurt there that she wasn't told that this is what... That it was a one-way... That it was, you know only going to happen one one direction that she's stuck in dragon form for yeah, yeah. She, had, she had this moment of shock where she's yeah. like I, I didn't know you had the secret and then Vi- uh, moon dragon's like and it's okay i understand if this ends our relationship after all i'm a giant dragon now and then phyla is like you idiot she says um heather if i if i do leave you it'll be over something important like your annoying tendency to steal the blankets at night and uh moon dragon says fi i'm not human anymore i can't ask you to and heather says uh, sorry, uh, Phyla says, Shush, the intimacy your mental powers give us is so much deeper than anyone knows, and those abilities seem to work just fine. Besides, I chose you, and you haven't changed, not in any way that matters. And mm-hmm. I love this. I love that she's just like, most of our sex was already in your telepathy, <laughs> so like, I don't really see this changing our marriage in any way that matters, and now you're a cool dragon that I can ride through space with a giant laser sword? And we could be the side of a van together. We're just like, um, <laughs> it's just a, a woman who is a knight married to a woman who is a dragon. And I just like, there's a very specific kind of person who likes that. And you are that person? Yeah, that's what I'm learning about myself here today. Um, I think that's rad as hell. And the uh, image of of Quasar riding the dragon of the moon through the cosmos screaming, let's ride while her sword turns gigantic should be the cover of my metal album. That that should be the side of every fan. Yeah, everywhere. I just think this is the coolest shit in the world. I think this is a great moment. Just like a comics moment that I truly love is um, Phyla accepting her wife as a dragon and then going off into battle together. I really like the way Gage also handles the scene itself because this could have been one of those terrible mel- melodramatic... Ugh, I hate when they do this. Where, where there's a secret and then everything blows up and... But it's not over, like, anything interesting. Like, so I've been reading the the IDW Transformers comics. And they're, one of the characters is keeping this big secret from everyone. But you as the audience know about it. And so you're waiting for it to come out. Because it's consequential that this thing was being kept. And it's meaningful that once it's revealed, like, trust is broken. Right. And so, And then there are consequences that follow from this. But something like this, where, like... It's at best a misunderstanding or like a with a withholding of information. And she even says, I thought there was more time. Like I wasn't intentionally keeping this as a as it's not, I was not lying to you. There just was a secret and I didn't know the right time or the right place. And now it's here. And so you we have to deal with it. Sometimes with writers, you get the feeling that they are not emotionally mature enough to write emotionally mature characters. And yeah. It's really gratifying that Gage writes these two women as emotionally mature and, like, um, having a difficult conflict that they work through as a married couple. And, again, this stuff yes. blew my mind at the time because I didn't—women uh, were not often offered this much agency, let alone gay women in my comics. And uh, for Gage to be writing these two characters, like— um, Or married d- characters in general. Yeah, or married like- characters. They were just written as, like, aspirational, emotionally intelligent adults, mm-hmm. and that felt so rare at the time. And for this genre— because like you know superhero comics are about everybody having outsized emotions and stomping their feet and killing each other and then coming back <laughs> from the dead 
And like, I accept yeah. that, but like, it was just so cool that, um, these two women handled this sci-fi conflict about what happens if your wife turns into a dragon. Like I would hope I would handle it if my wife turned into a dragon. I just like, uh, that's the heroes I want. It turns out. You um, want all dragons all the time. Yeah, and how cool would it be if your wife was a dragon? I'm not afraid, ashamed to admit it, and I wasn't a minute ago either. Well, what type of dragon? Wyvern, you've got spines. Obviously ones. this demon dragon of the moon. It's freaking cool <laughs> as hell. It's got, like, awesome spines. It shoots this, like, blue fire. It kind of looks like a cool version of the Game of Thrones zombie dragon. I don't really have that much more to say about the rest of the series. Like, we've got a, a few more plot beats but for the most part, it's just one big fight uh, and then, you know, the reveals of what's going on with the quantum bands and the final that final push we get. But we also get this weird tech cocoon. Yeah, but and the fi- the final battle is baller. It looks like Lord of the Rings, but with like space laser lightsaber stuff. I, I feel oh, yeah, like this is pure sword and sorcery. I feel like this is, um, there was, like, a schlocky time in movies when, like, Sucker Punch was coming out where everyone was stealing, like, the iconography of Peter Jackson movies, but, like, without any of the gravitas or anything. And for me, at least, this is working. This is totally, like, epic fantasy stuff, but I was really sold on this love story up until this point. So I'm, like, I'm into this uh, final stand. Oh, yeah. We we even get a, a, ver- a very nice, very fun uh, Yellow Lantern style. <laughs> construct battle yeah and that's yeah fucking cool the construct battle the big snake creature was terrifying yeah terrifying but we finally find out at the end that um the guiding voice was trying to guide them to this cocoon to rescue it from the phalanx to get the weird metal shit off of it and they do and they open it up and again this is the kind of thing that if you're a deep marvel fan and you see space cocoon you probably know it's adam warlock adam freaking warlock comes out of the cocoon and yeah and now we just have like another classic weirdo marvel space character in the mix and in fact i don't know if this was because james gunn denies it from from you know the edge of the galaxy to the other that his weird space cocoon in at the end of guardians 2 is going to be adam warlock but everyone has pegged that as an adam warlock cocoon it looks exactly like this cocoon right yep only it's gold. Yeah. Well, and well, the yeah, the people keeping it are are have the exact same gold and alabaster complexion that Alan Warlock does. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It seems like it was at least a, a nod. I don't like to. I'm not one of those people who likes to go too deep into like holding the MCU to stuff. I think it's fun that they play, and if they want to seize upon it, that's great. I just like uh, people get really intense about that, and I think it's like easy come, easy true. go. But if you're gonna if you're gonna put a camera pan and be like this is very important and on something very iconic, you gotta deliver or the change got has got to be pretty important. Sure. And I. Uh... Yeah, it's not like the like an Easter egg in the background of the collector's room or the color of an infinity gem. Right. But at the end of this, Elias, so I can tell I was super enthusiastic about this. I love these characters. I love this love story. I thought this was a fun adventure. I like the art a lot. Um, you seem like uh, not as uh, effusive as me, but like I wouldn't say chilly, just like uh, less, less no, losing their mind. I enjoyed them. I, I think I was confused as to why this was in the same way that the other miniseries were like that volume two in the middle of Annihilation, this feels like that, but the quality is higher. Like, it feels... 
it doesn't I don't know where we're going. Like these are tie-ins that have been touched by the stuff that's going on in, in the prologue, but it's all set dressing and it's more it's more about the characters and that's good. I'm glad that that's what these tie-ins kind of are. I just I think when I first read them I was expecting it to really be pushing forward a story, but I have no idea what's supposed to be happening in, in Annihilation Conquest from here on out. It's just these they're just being attacked after being attacked in Conquest. It's kind of just mission 1 for each of them as they go on soul searching and figure out who they are or in Peter Quill's case figure out why he has to lead this team of goofs so you'll see as this event continues to play out it takes on the structure of a lot of uh, smaller like X-Men events that were happening in this era Mm -hmm. but where there's a bunch of different missions happening parallel and like one character is getting to the truth behind the matter and a lot of the other characters are um, dealing with these like frontline battle adventures that involve a lot of uh, cameos of familiar faces and dramatic reveals and stuff. And gotcha. I also kind of want to warn you. So Elias, how are you reading these? I have these all in paperback and I'm reading these right off my bookshelf. Although it's eventually not... I'm going to have to go online because I don't have all the issues from the next big series. <laughs> I have been reading them in the completed, the tr- the big trades uh, on through my library, through, through Hoopla. So um, I read this in Conquest Part 1. And I think this next one, I'm going to have to read like two or three different collections because, you know, we got Nova. Yeah, which I will uh, be going over in just a second. But I was just going to say that. So in my version of the paperback, the set dressing contains a bunch of spoilery images of some characters who the first time I read this issue by issue when it was coming out, I um, I didn't know mm-hmm. the reveals. So um, just like. If you, the more surprised you can be, there's some good twists and turns that you might find delightful and some stuff that I think will um, enhance your knowledge of a bunch of X-Men lore that I know you're interested in from when we talk about X-Men stuff a lot on this podcast. Huh, already. Um, we'll be getting to know more about the Phalanx and where they come from, and it will touch upon some other like mechanical X-Men characters. This is exciting. I'm excited yeah. for the next part. As as I don't mean to, to make it seem like I was like, oh, these miniseries were, they're all right, I guess. No, 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 no. I, Really enjoyed them. I think I I was probably most excited by Conquest Prologue, but Starlord and Quasar were both great miniseries on their own. You know, reading them one after the other. That probably also indicates that um, I, I I happen to believe. I mean, I like Abnett and Lanning most of the time. There's very few series that they've written that I don't think are that I don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was them at their peak. I think this was the hottest they ever were. And I think you're liking. It. I think you like uh, Abnett and Lanning at the height of their powers because uh, all their issues have been your favorite so far they did the nova parts that you liked yep and they're going to be doing most of the next set of issues we're reading and most of the issues we're reading after that actually they completely huh. take over this thing so oh, next wow. time we will be reading a bunch of different issues that i'm going to say a recommended reading order now i while this is recommended i don't think um you, you could do it however you like you could uh this is splitting it up by issue by issue and miniseries and there are some reveals that cross over um, I will be trying my best to respect this reading uh, order, but I have it in paperback, so it might just be a huge pain in my butt. Um, but we will next time be reading Nova number one, uh, number sorry, Nova number four to seven. Then a miniseries called uh, Annihilation Conquest Wraith numbers one to four. Then Annihilation Conquest the miniseries proper numbers one and two. Then back to Nova for issues number eight to ten. Then the Nova Annual Number One, 
Annihilation Conquest number 3 to 5, Nova number 11 and 12, and finally we're going to finish off the series with Annihilation Conquest number 6. Uh, we will be posting that reading order when we post this episode of the podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll try to make it as clear as possible. Yep. And if you're reading it in trade, uh, the Annihilation Conquest Book 2 collection has Nova 4 through 7. It starts with that. Uh, so you can read that. You could read the last three ish- the last four issues of the Nova trade that you, if you read the uh, during the end during last episode which you read the first three issues of nova they're also in that trade uh and then nova volume two which is subtitled nowhere that contains issues eight through 12 plus the annual yeah so. and and uh comics collecting is a weird hobby but oh um, yeah but for elias and i are just the kind of nerds who like this kind of stuff and we <laughs> hope you are too exactly so if you're reading along with us in trade, that's how you do it. If you're reading along in single issues, we've got you covered. Uh, you can get the single issues on Marvel Unlimited. You can get the trades probably from your local library, hopefully, or on Hoopla. Uh, or you can purchase them from your local comic book shor- store or wherever you can find them. Yeah, and I think you're really going to love it, uh, Elias and listeners at home. It's really going to pop off in a satisfactory way. Um, but I think that about does it for these issues today. Yeah. So, Jake, where can they find you on the larger interwebs? I am still a contributor at multiversitycomics.com. It's a pretty great website, and I uh, do the mutant diversity column there. Um, You might be seeing some of the stylings of my pal Elias Rosner on that column in the very near future. Um, You can also find me on Twitter at rambling underscore moose. Elias, are you as easily findable as me on the greater interwebs? I mean, you can find me whether or not you can contact me on the Greater Underreds. Different question. Uh, I am on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. It is the name of my favorite alien planet, uh, which will hopefully not be blown up in the next part of Conquest. But you can also find me writing over at Multiversity.com. I do all sorts of stuff mostly tv stuff by the time this episode airs we will be in the middle of the summer I don't actually know what the summer is looking like this year uh normally we have a multiversity summer comics and tv binge if so i will be doing more babylon 5 and some comic maybe it'll be 52 which is countdown down wrong oh i love 52 i love 52 too uh, uh i'll have to ask walt for the trademark on that though <laughs> wow Now I have to think about mine. But that's it for today, guys. We're going to brainstorm what we're going to be reading for Multiversity another time. Exactly. All right. Have a good one. See you out there.